Anything I can't stand. It's sneaky people. I just can't stand sneaky people. I, uh, being a personally a very forthright, open, honest, reliable, sober, industrious, concerned, uh, deeply motivated individual, I find that I just can't stand sneaky people. <laughs> and uh, I trust that uh, tonight, gathered out there in the undergrowth, there's a lot of uh, also. Deeply concerned, honest, reliable, sober, industrious people. I'm glad to see you out there, gang. It's kind of nice to know that you're one of the good crowd, isn't it, though? Hi, George. Well, uh, uh, just to, you know, just try to, try to, try to hold it back for the next 45 minutes or so. It's not going to be easy. But, uh, we'll do a real bad show tonight. I must warn you. Just, so don't get disappointed. It's going to be real bad going to be totally bad, because it's Friday night, and I prefer to indulge myself. Right? Oh, tomorrow's Friday, as far as I'm concerned. Bring it up. Don't get mad. Oh, no, no. Wait a minute now. I'm part of the new world. You're way back in your old... You're, you're living back in the dark ages. I'm serious. You're, you're way back there with the bubonic plague and stuff like that. As a matter of fact, uh, I know perfectly well, if you're going to be old-fashioned, yes, today is Thursday. That's if you're an old you-know-what, uh, if you prefer to be old-fashioned about it. But no person in today's hard-hitting, dynamic, totally hedonistic world will even concede today that his weekend does not start any later than noon on Thursday. As a matter of fact, I saw three executives leaving the station here at 20 after 2 today one guy had three tennis rackets with him and a set of golf clubs. The other guy had a secretary under his arm. And they were taken off to the main woods. I said, what is he? What do you mean, where am I going? He says, it's the weekend. Oh, I realize it is the weekend. So tonight, you have, to adjust, you have to adjust your whole way of thinking. It's, you know, the old linear thinking is out, friend. Forget it about those old days, Monday, Tuesday. Uh, what came after Tuesday? Monday... Tuesday. What was that day? Started with an M, I think. Came after Tuesday, Monday, Tuesday. I mean, you know, Wednesday. That's it. Wednesday it was an old day. Yeah, Wednesday, Thursday. This is used to be Thursday in the old system of calculating these things, and it is now actually the weekend is well underway. And uh, there is another thing you must understand too that the weekend does not cease being the weekend till roughly 8 p.m. on Tuesday what used to be Tuesday. So I know what I'm doing. Oh, you made a mistake. Oh, well. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, by the way, uh, speaking of mistakes, uh, our engineer Keith tonight says this is the middle of the week. You know, we're, we're, uh, yeah, for engineers, it's the middle of the week. I mean, for, you know, for big people, it's the beginning of the week. You know what I mean? Keith's <laughs> eyebrows go up. 
<laughs> no, Keith, he, he said, uh, he says, would you please do one thing for me? He says, it's bad enough working the show. And uh, without, you know, without getting any kind of self-gratification. And uh, he happens to be a practicing sadist. And, and since he is this, he said, I would like to do at least, if, uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to be on the controls of at least three minutes of really, really mean, rotten, hairy, stinky Jews harp music. I said, well, I said, after all, you have to think of the listener. He says, well, that's exactly what I'm thinking of. He says, there's nobody that I'd like to get back at more than the listener. And I said, well, all right, Keith, is that the way it is? You know, has it ever occurred to you that radio stations may be bludgeons in the hand of monsters? Yeah, <laughs> we're using 50,000 watts of secret electronic power to bludgeon your brain into a bloody, gray, massy pulp, you know. Oh, I crying out like the, the Cousin Brucey syndrome. It just, bore, you know, just booms out there night after night. How do you like that? All right, y'all sit in there, Keith. This is for you. All right, here we go. That's good for her. Hello? Hello? Gee, did you hear me there? Did you tell him to close the door to the john? There it is. You know what that's really good for? I found it's very important. It's good for the sinuses. It clears them up, get them clinkers moving. And, uh, <laughs> you really do, you know? And, uh, you know, speaking of getting the clinkers moving here, uh, before we get underway here on this uh, somewhat, uh, somewhat uh, you know how it is Thursday night, now, it just just occurred to me uh, today. I'm walking around on Lexington Avenue, and everywhere you go, you see these people sitting around. They got the 
you know, the radio's going, everybody's talking about the Mets, and all of a sudden, it's everybody's talking about baseball, period. Joe Namath is off the front page. And uh, <laughs> he's Gonesville. Well, uh, it hit me. You know, it's, it's funny. Here, uh, along come the Jets, and they win the title in their league, and nobody expected them to do it a couple of years ago. At least even last year they didn't, you know, and they went out to do it. Yeah, and now it's the Mets. Now, uh, you know, maybe it's just the atmosphere. Maybe, maybe sports is a, is far more subtle than we think. It uh, it may be that that it's in the air. That uh, New York's time is here, and uh, everything in New York wins. Watch the Knicks this year, then. <laughs> really, I'm not kidding. Watch the Knicks. Uh, New York's stock in the sports world is definitely booming, and uh, it could be. Now, these things, of course. Now, again, we're getting philosophical, you see. And I, today, I'm I'm sitting uh, in this place. I'm waiting for my turn to come up, and one of these places, you know, where you have to tell them this is me and my appointment's at three, and by you know four thirty they're calling you into the office, and I'm sitting in there, crossing and uncrossing my legs and trying to read for the. 15th time, this 1953 edition of the National Geographic, which is in that office. And, uh, yes, it's the resident copy of the National Geographic. Hey, I'm just going to ask another philosophical question. Rhetorical, of course. Do people get the National Geographic, or is only sent to doctor's offices? You know the magazine, the National Geographic? I've ne- You get it? Oh, for crying out loud. Well, there, there goes my philosophical question. I never knew anybody who got it, actually. It's a great magazine. Yeah, it's an expensive one. Ain't no cheapy. Yeah, I know that. And I figured, you know, the only people that got it were dentists. And uh, they only got old ones. I never saw a new one. Uh, I have never seen one less than two and a half years old. And it's always, it's got the same article in it all the time. It's uh, by canoe and balsa wood raft up the Ubangi River with a gun and elementary canal. Stuff like that. And it shows the guy standing there, you know, talking to the natives on the shore. It says, interesting native tattoos can be seen. And you see, there's more than native tattoos that are being shown in this picture. It's what is tattooed that's interesting. <laughs> and they never refer to that. But, uh, you know, I I, uh, I just figured that... Uh, that uh, I'm just full of philosophical questions tonight. And I'll tell you why. I'm sitting in this office, and uh, I have this copy of the Times I bring in there, and I'm reading it. And there's a little note that says, Physicist reports he has discovered smallest particle in the universe. And I kind of like, it's an Australian physicist, see? He says he is, quote, 99% sure that he has discovered the smallest particle of matter known to man. I'm sitting there scratching my, you know, just scratching my knee and, and they're waiting to be called. I'm thinking about the smallest particle known to man. Philosophical, of course. Now we're getting into the philosophical areas there, you see, because you can't actually reach out and grab one of them and to hold on to it. Now, uh, it's got a great name. Do you know what the name of this uh, smallest particle is? It's a cute name. It's the kind of a name that you would think it would appear on the uh, Saturday afternoon uh, TV kid uh, cartoons, the name of a funny duck. Do you hear what the name of it is? It's not the atom or the molecule. It's the quark. Oh, it's kind of cute, that little quark, you know, running around there. And, uh, yeah, it's a quark with a Q. 
And are, are we having a fun election? For those of you who are outside, we're just having more fun. Now, if you like mud, uh, we're having fun. And uh, mud is, uh, you know, it's kind of a basic thing. People all start out making mud pies and making little mud stuff. And, and it's only natural that man, when he grows up, begins to throw it. Now, he can throw it. Uh, there's all, all different ways to throw mud. But we are having a ring-ding of an election. And uh, today I stood out there on Fifth Avenue. There's a gigantic sign that says, Lindsay. And that sign was maybe 150 feet high and 4,000 feet long. And I stood there in front of it. And there's all kinds of pictures of, of the mayor looking dynamic. And he's rising above crowds all the time with the sun trickling down over his cheekbones and his hair glistening. And he's looking off into the horizon, see. And uh, those pictures all look so groovy, don't they? They don't show you, you know, around the back of the building that he's standing spread eagle in front of this beautiful big building. You don't see the big piles of garbage up to the four-story window there and all the dog stuff, and, you know, all the rest of it. This is all part of Fun City. You just got to expect it. It's all here, the Alpha and the Omega. The plus and the minus, the sturm and drang. And you know, that reminds me. Hey, can I, can I interrupt you guys for a minute? You know, a couple of nights, a couple of nights ago, uh, I hate to interrupt all, you know, the parties that go on in the control room sometimes. We just got to do these shows that we, you know, it's such a drag, I admit. But, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I predicted, I, I did, I predicted, now I'm gonna, I'm gonna gloat here. And there's nothing, Nothing more distasteful than a man gloating, and I and I'm just going to gloat here. A co- oh, it's been at least a couple of months ago that I said that one of the one of the problems that we have today, and it's a, it's a problem too, is that we conceive of sin as sex. People, when they talk about passion and they talk about sin, it's always sex, and uh, almost every Swedish movie is about this. You know they. You know, you see this this big scene in the second reel there where all these people are wrestling and, and you know, it's all artistically photographed with the flashing lights and all that. The next day, Rex Reed says, oh, a darling picture. Well, uh, this, uh, this, uh, <laughs> this, is a, this is a limited view of sin. And I'm glad to report that Fellini, the Italian director, has followed, uh, obviously, Great Mind's work in parallel, that he has, he has created a movie where the other sins are given their full-fledged run through the thickets. And it's a restaging of Roman glutton orgies. His new film, did you hear about it, Satyricon? And I hear it's just groovy. I mean, there's big pictures of these guys eating live eels. You ought to try that. Yes, live eels, man. They got more than that, you know. There's kids listening. I tell them, well, what else? They got all kinds of stuff, and he's and and it's just, you know, it's it's it, it makes any Swedish movie look like uh, the Bobsy Twins revisited in color. At uh, <laughs> it goes all the way. Now, now sins, of course, uh, come in many sizes and shapes, friends. And I, I just want to tell you tonight again. I must repeat that as part of our public service programming and our public service department has prepared a booklet entitled. Are you sinning more and enjoying it less? Or how to get more out of the other seven sins? Uh, speaking of sins, have you tried, say, for example, sloth? Well, how about gluttony? You have tried that one. Well, <laughs> well we all know about lust. Uh, now, have you tried envy, though? Now, that's a good sin. Well, now, you say, no, you haven't, and you're giving it a value judgment. There is nothing more health-giving and brings the roses to the cheeks than a good, total, completely unfettered, open, and 
thoroughly realized session of dynamic envy. Yes, it is. It make, you see, we all suppress it. We sit around now. Let's see you hear about your friend uh, Clarence, see. At that. You know, there's old Clarence down there. He's got the, you know, the rimless glasses. He's kind of fat, you know, and everybody kind of puts Clarence down. All of a sudden, it turns out that Clarence has been having an unbelievable affair with this chick who's a centerfold off from last month's Playboy. And then on top of it, Clarence has just been nominated to the, be the assistant chairman of the board of the, uh, of the Amalgamated God Company. It's in charge of everything, sir. Well, how do you handle that, And then you see Clarence walk down the street, and magically he has grown two and a half feet in height. He has a 12-inch waist. He has an Italian silk suit that looks like it was sprayed on him. And he is stepping into his new 4.9 cc Maserati. Now what? All right. Now, what do you say? Do you, being a man of the you know, 20th century good guy type, you say, well, I'm certainly pleased that Clarence is gone. As, you know, I always knew that Clarence had it in him. And I say to Clarence, by God, Clarence, go as far and as high as you can go, Clarence. And deep down inside of you, this thing is, oh, look at that. You see, the trouble is, envy is largely declared by the FCC obscene. I cannot tell you the thoughts that you think of Clarence without running risks. Why don't you tomorrow morning get up and just do it? Stand by your bed and swear about the other ones. Just get mad. Break the windows and kick. Now, this is all philosophical. Now, I understand this is philosophical, and I want to bother you with this philosophical problem. Say, they, they, they tend to bug you, right, George? You get, you get all hung up, the next thing you know, you don't care whether Namath throws another pass or not, and you sit there wondering about stuff you shouldn't wonder about, right? You know, you just get too deeply involved. Like today, reading about this quark, the smallest particle known to man, now, the reason I am bringing this up tonight, the very serious reason for this, now, I keep looking on TV, see, and I watch movies and stuff, and I notice one thing that's always happening in TV, and it's always happening in movies, and that's fistfights. Practically hardly a movie goes by, but what Kirk Douglas doesn't say, you said what? Whap! And the next thing you know, the bar mirror crashes and they're throwing bottles. Somebody picks up a chair and runs it up and Claire Trevor gets it in the mouth. And You know, this fist fight. Okay, how many have you seen in the, in the movies? Fist fights. Oh, probably 250,000 or more. <laughs> I mean, you know. Now I'm going to ask you. Now this is an important question. How many have you ever actually seen in your life? Now, if you were to judge by movies, there must be a fist fight busting out every 15 minutes. You know, remember, any place that, say, uh, uh, John Wayne shows up, there's fist fights. Uh, any place that, uh, yeah, there are fist fights in almost every movie, no matter what kind of movie it is. There are as many or more fist fights in movies than there are love scenes. And there's a lot of those. Now, there's hardly any of the scenes that you and I actually live. You know that I have never seen a guy wait for his cleaning in a movie? I spend most of my life waiting for cleaning. I, uh, well, that's the truth. I'm just uh, saying that there, there must be something here. Now, now I'm sitting in this, in this place waiting for this guy to call me into his office where he's going to charge me $200, you know, to, to uh, uh, you know, just walk around and, and uh, put little knobs on me and stuff like that. So I'm listening to this 
jabbering going on there, and I can hear the screams of the of the uh, other victims in the next room, you know, the dentist, you can hear that. By the way, did you see the fantastic scene of, of uh, W.C. Fields being a dentist? Did you ever see his short called The Dentist? It's one of the funniest shorts I ever saw in my life. It is almost as funny as the short that he does called The Barber. <laughs> There's a scene where the guy comes in to this dentist's office. He really looks like a dentist. That's what makes him so good at it. See, he acts like every dentist I've ever been. He really does act like one. And he's got a white coat, and he's got this lady that works with him. And the guy gets in the chair. In fact, it was a lady got in the chair. And he's going, <laughs> and he, he takes out a he takes out a list, a big big, uh, you know, one of these big trays of nut picks that they work on you with. And he looks in her mouth. And he goes. And she opens up her traps. With that, the girl sticks a thing in her mouth. This nurse he's got work with, she, she takes this thing that looks like a plumber's helper, see? She sticks it in this lady's mouth that goes... It starts to suck it up, you know? It's going like mad, and he's going... And he reaches up, and he takes his drill. This drill sounded like a sawmill in heat. This drill roared out. What a terrible sound. It was roaring. And I thought, they have hit it. They have hit the curse of all of it. How many times have you lain on your back in the dentist and you hear that little thing go... And then it gets hot and you can smell the dust of your tooth going up into the air as he's slowly drilling his way into the marrow of your skull bone. W.C. just kept on... It's very interesting. His drill goes, and he's really like a real dentist. He's not playing it like like the Three Stooges would play it. And I sat there, oh, that is the essence of humor. To play it the way it is. And I'm sitting in this office today, and I'm reading about the quark. The smallest particle known to man. And it hit me. The smallest particle known to man. That sounds familiar. Would you please give me, if you can bother Lee there for a minute, she's on the phone with an angry complainer. Would you please give me, if you will, a little Japanese koto music. That is contemplating the naval music. There it is. Very good. Just uh, scoop it out there. That's it, that's it, the purple one. That's good, that's fine. All right, I whatever you have. Don't say we don't have it. Just get what you got and it'll work. Just put any one of those on because, you know, one side of man, and I say it's the most violent side, is not the predator. It's not the predator. It's the com- contemplative side. It's the side of man that sits there and contemplates the infinite and makes vast, fantastic generalities of it. And I thought to myself, why did I hear 
the smallest particle known to man. Where did I hear that before? Yes. Yes, indeed. And then the doctor's office faded out. And I see the whole scene before me. The only time I ever saw a full-blown fistfight. Just like the kind they have in the John Wayne movies. Did not come about in a bar, which everybody likes to think is where the fights happen. Like, uh, you know, arguing over some chick, which is the way they always are in the movies. It came about over the totally nutty, irrational side of man. I wish you now, friend, to look into the incense of your mind. Yes. You see that little old Buddha sitting there with the smoke coming out of his nose? You can hear the sound of the temple chimes, can't you? This man counts those bits of straw and rice, those fish bones and those dried tea leaves of philosophy and contemplates what it's about. The smallest particle known to man. Now, if you take an atom and you divide it up, it has to be smaller, there has to be small, you can bust anything. And you got molecules, and then you break the molecules down, and then you break the thingies down, and the radons down, and the quasars down, and the protons down, and you're left with what? A quark. Indeed, a quark. Reminds me of the poem, The Hunting of the Quark. No, they picked that name seriously. You think that's a bad joke. It is not a bad joke. It is a bad joke only to those without humor in their soul. <laughs> you may now remove your 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 seared ashes from the premises. <laughs> the quark, the smallest particle known to man. That's it. Drift it out now, Keith, and I will describe the scene. Now, the only fist fight that I ever saw. Really a genuine one. I've seen guys push each other around. I've seen guys belt each other once in a while. But I'm talking about a real fist fight. Happened in a tent. Now, how many times have you seen fights in the Army? What do they come about? I mean, what is a fight in the movies? What, what do guys fight about in the Army? Uh, usually they, you know, it's usually James Whitmore. And uh, he's about to fight with... Uh, uh, somebody like uh, Rip Torn. And uh, there's always the uh, Southern Sergeant played by Rod Steiger. And he's going to show, Ain't no Yankee going to tell me how to, how, to, how to act toward nobody. You know what you say? You know, this is what the fights are always about in the movie version of life. That's a simple fight. It is now 8 o'clock in the evening. It is after chow. Boredom hangs heavy over the company area. So heavy that you could just cut it if you wanted to with your trench knife and make little, you know, you can make little balls out of it and toss it back and forth and play catch with it. And I come wandering down the company street, little realizing I'm about to observe a scene. <laughs> Boy, 
And in fact, I will be part of the scene, which I will forever never forget. I come drifting down the street. There's mud, the dock boards. Nothing's happening. We've had the baked, I believe it was baked salmon loaf, which our uh, mess hall specialized in, baked salmon loaf with dried onions in it. So, that's right. Well, no, Spam was our Sunday meal. That was when we were lucky. We got this baked salmon loaf that came from this Class D rejected salmon that they were going to use for fertilizer down in Mississippi, and somebody said ship it to the Army, so we got it. So we had baked salmon loaf. And the other specialty of the house, which was pickled beets. Now, the combination, I understand, today is not considered as explosive as it was then. But uh, I'll just describe to you what happened. We had baked salmon loaves, we had uh, pickled beets, and we had purple Kool-Aid, known better to the company as Purple Death. We had this uh, drink. It was, uh, I think it was, some, it was an experimental Kool-Aid flavor, like uh, fermented raisin or something like that, and, and we got the whole shipment. So uh, Company K is letting its meal ferment, and I come drifting down the company area, and there's my little tent, which I shared with five other guys. It was one of these pyramidal six-man tents. And it was kind of a coolish fall day like this, a day like any other day. At that time, I'd been in the Army, oh, 100, 150 years, had maybe another 200 years to go. So there was no press. Nobody was working. There was Nobody was bucking for nothing because there was nothing to buck for. As a matter of fact, our company, uh, in the entire... Uh, tour of duty, our company, there were three stripes that were distributed. One guy made PFC and another guy made Corporal. And that was the entire TO outside of Lieutenant Cherry and the succession of toadies that he had working for him as exec officers. And of course then there was Sergeant Kowalski who uh, had every known stripe that was ever given to man. In fact, he was the only nine stripe sergeant I ever saw. He had stripes that went up around the back of his neck and started down the other arm. And so old Kowalski, everybody has disappeared. It's just us, the EM that night. And I go into the tent. You've got to sort of bend your head down a little bit, and it's dark in there, see. Now I sit down on the edge of my bunk, sitting on the edge of the bunk there. I could taste the salmon loaf. <clears throat> Comes up a little bit like that. Then, you know, there was always an encore. After that, you'd go, <clears throat> another one would come, and that would be the beats. And then there was three beats, you would wait, and then <clears throat> up would come the purple death. And then you'd repeat the succession. You'd go back to the meatloaf again. And once in a while, you'd play a little encore from yesterday, get a little SOS thrown in there, maybe maybe a little uh, dried, uh, perhaps a little dried scrambled eggs. In fact, our company was so poor at times, they couldn't even afford the water for the dried scrambled eggs, and we used to spoon in the dried egg powder dry in the morning, you know. So, I'm sitting there on the edge of my bunk. Just, you see what happens in the Army or any place, like even in college, there's long stretches. In fact, it's certainly, you see it here on the 23rd floor, long stretches where your mind entirely turns off. Your mind has left for Alaska. In fact, it's just not even there anymore. Your mind is dead. It's gone. Nothing. Your body is just sitting there. You're not even conscious of your body. You're just sort of a little of contemplative music, please, if you will. You're just sort of sitting, see. You're almost approaching one of the rare lotus positions of the true nothingness of being. 
I mean, your body's not worth looking at now, since it's filled with uh, meatloaf, salmon meatloaf. Your mind has been out to pasture now for, oh, ever since the time you got out of basic. You're sitting there. And I dimly perceive across from me in the darkness is Gasser, sitting on the edge of his bunk. And he is picking his toes, which is, a, you know, this is a hobby that a lot of guys pick up. You just sit there and you pick at your toes. That's kind of nice. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's some, you got to do something. And uh, Edwards is sitting over on his bunk, and he's doing what he always did, which was polish his belt buckle. He went through maybe 20, 30 belt buckles, just polished them down to the quark stage. Just polish them. We're sitting there, the three of us. Well, in walks Elkins, the company driver, who was a troublemaker. Elkins walks in. Well, he was a troublemaker because a long time before, Elkins had seen a Preston Foster movie about how you should join the Air Force and become a cadet. And he went down and he joined up. And ten minutes later, they found out that he didn't have any depth perception. And they just threw him into the big hopper, and he wound up driving a half-track. And a half-track ain't exactly a P-51 Mustang. And he never forgot it. So he had reason to be a troublemaker. He always wore his hat, by the way, with a 50 cr mission crush. <laughs> he did. He always saw himself as driving a P-51 when he drove the half-track around. He used to do Shondell's. And so, I'm sitting there, Elkins walks in, and he says, this is how it began. What time is it? Any of you guys know what time it is? Gasser looks up and says, what difference does it make? Well, now that's an on-the-muscle answer. Elkins says, what do you mean, what difference? It makes the difference because I asked. That's what difference it is. I asked what time it is. I look up from my naval contemplation. I can see that the Zinsmeister has now ceased to uh, look up through the hole in the ceiling, which he always looked up through in moments of stress, and he is now looking into the tent. <laughs> and Edwards has laid his belt buckle down. And Gasser says... If I told you what time it was, Elkins, would it make any difference? Elkins sits down on a on a footlocker. Says, "What's eating you?" I said, "What time is it?" Cancer said, "What is time, Elkins?" Alcott says, what do you mean, what is time, Gasser? Time is whether it's 8.30 or not. With that, Zinsmeister, and this was a fatal mistake, Zinsmeister sticks his oar in. He says, now wait a minute. There are several theories about time, men. As a matter of fact, time, according to many philosophers does not exist at all. Alcott says, are you putting me on? I said, what time is it? Are you trying to tell me that 8 o'clock don't exist? And Zinsmeister says, that is correct. With that, 
sitting over in the far corner. Goldberg says, what are you guys talking about? What do you mean time doesn't exist? Time does exist. If I can tell you that it's 8 o'clock, then it's 8 o'clock, and if I feel that it's 8 o'clock, it is 8 o'clock. And Cassie says, get out. After all, what is time? you got a sun moving around, right? you got an earth moving around the sun. And somebody sometime decided that if we mark off little lines, that would be what time it is. And Elkin says, I want to know what time it is. Is it 8.10 or 8.15? What time is it? Because I don't want to miss that crummy show down at the PX. Gasser says, you're an idiot. It is not at the PX. It's, a, it's at the Post Theater. Edward says, now look, you're getting me all confused. Zinsmeister says, some people feel that time does not exist. And Gasser says, well, what do you mean time doesn't exist? Of course it exists. But this fool who are here says that it's, it's all in my own mind. And Goldberg says, that's right, it's all in your own mind. Elkins got up and took a hold of Gasser's shoulder and pushed him flat on the bunk. Says, tell me what time it is, Fink. Gasser got up and says, what did you say? I tell you that time is only a thing that is in your own mind. With that, Elkins hit him in the mouth. Thirty seconds later... All six guys are rolling around the floor, flailing away. Zinsmeister knocked the tent's stove over. Three of the footlockers spilled open. Gasser's got a bloody nose. Elkins has got a black eye. And Kowalski is pulling them all apart. What's going on here, men? What's going on here? And with that, <laughs> Gasser says, we're trying to decide what time is. <laughs> I just wanted to tell you, friends, that that argument was never resolved. And for two years after that, it simmered like a terrible fester under the surface of Company K's placid exterior. What is time? Is it on Gasser's Mickey Mouse watch? Or is it in Elkin's poor, sad, disappointed mind? Is it in Zinsmeister's contemplation of the eternal hourglass? Or is it part of the quark theory of the quantum dipole estrogen theory of multiple fourth dimensional time curve space vectors? Who is to know?